Frontline contracting officers contend with a lot of policy. One thing about policy, it's always changing. And that can get in the way of basic efficiency and pricing considerations. At last week's National Contract Management Association World Congress in Nashville, I discussed this with John Tanaglia, the Principal Director of Pricing and Contracting at the Defense Department, and with Janice Muskoff, the Director of Price, Cost, and Finance. Here's an excerpt, and understand it was a loud exhibit hall. And what goes into pricing expertise and knowledge of what prices ought to be? Okay, well, that is a tough subject because, like you said, you would think it would be easy, but it's not necessarily. So one of the things that I do is I'm very involved in training. And as a professional with 34 years in this business, there's a lot that you learn over time. And so one of the things that I focus on is partnering with organizations like Defense Acquisition University, to teach folks out in contracting and pricing the really tough stuff in our business. So whereas you think it might be simple, in a competitive world, I would say pricing can be much more simple, but then we also have our sole source contracts where it becomes more and more challenging. Yeah, so I guess the main challenge then is knowing what the cost elements are that go into something that you're buying, whether it's manufactured or it's a service or software development, and then knowing what an industry norm is for a profit. Is that kind of how we arrive at prices rather than working price on down? So it's going to depend on the circumstances. If you have competition, that drives price reasonableness. Now, we have laws that help us. One of them is called truthful cost or pricing data and uh, formerly known as the Truth in Negotiations Act. And there's exceptions to when companies have to provide what we call certified cost or pricing data. When they do, so say it's a major weapons platform, it's not competed, we are now in with one vendor, we're locked. And so then you start getting into what are the cost elements the companies require to provide data to put the contracting officer on equal footing And we even have tools to aid contracting officers in terms of things like what would a reasonable profit objective be for purpose of the negotiation. And then, of course, there's a lot of analysis that goes into looking at the Mm -hmm. data in order to figure out from a government contracting perspective, what do we think a fair and reasonable price is? Yes, because I guess a contractor could be totally honest but wrong which is a different situation than if they're deliberately making up cost elements. But inflation, changes in raw material markets, sudden changes in labor markets locally can all affect what goes into a price, fair to say? So I would talk about the difference between the facts that we ask uh, companies to provide. Transparency of information is pretty key. Uh, A lot of the substantiation of prices that are proposed involve facts. Some involve judgment. And so we have techniques to deal with either, and ultimately it comes down to negotiation. Now, your session here at NCMA, I'll read a sentence from it. How can you balance the need for efficiency while navigating through existing and emerging policies? What were you talking about? So we stand in a position to implement a lot of the policies that the Congress enacts through the National Defense Authorization Act. Those are policy objectives to advance various interests. Let's say cybersecurity, for example. That's one that comes up quite frequently, recognizing 
there are positive effects of making sure that the, the controls that we have over our sensitive information that's unclassified is sufficient so it's protected. But the balance is, what are the compliance burden that's associated with that? Striking the balance in that one particular area. But there's a lot of other areas of public policy, that's socioeconomic objectives, whether it's in executive orders that the president signs or in the statutes. And so the, that balancing act comes down to the policies that we implement, either through the rulemaking process. We manage the federal acquisition regulation and the defense federal acquisition regulation supplements, right, sure, the DFARS. Yep. And so that's the formal side of, of our business and implementing and balancing the interest. With, when we go through rulemaking, we seek public comment and making sure that we're understanding what the cost impacts of these compliance are, requirements are. My guests are John Tanaglia, the Principal Director for Defense Pricing and Contracting at the Defense Department, and Janice Muskoff, the Director of Price, Cost, and Finance. And so the implication then is that new rules, new regulations have a compliance cost. They might even have a physical cost in terms of people or labor. And so you have to understand that. So you have to read all those things under 800-0 through 800-99, sometimes even more than that, to understand the impact on contractors. Fair to say? I think that there can absolutely be a cost to compliance. And, you know, there's different sources for the policies that come about. Sometimes they're, you know, congressionally mandated, right? And so we go through the public rulemaking process. We look at, you know, impacts. But at the end of the day, you know, if, if it's a law that stems from our Congress, you know, we're going to you know, put that into the default. Sure. Understood. All right. So give us maybe some examples of a policy that could be reflected in price, finance, costing, all of these issues. Let me talk about, so just uh, the week before last, we issued guidance on use of other transaction authority. Right. That's a non-FAR-based that. authority. <laughs> yep. And so this is an opportunity to somewhat normalize how other transaction agreements are executed across the department. But the balancing act we're taking there is not wanting to impose a FAR-like regulatory regime on the use of other transaction authority. Yeah, you but, would kill the goose. Right, exactly. So, But we also want to demonstrate to the Congress that we're responsible using that authority, in most cases for prototypes, mm -hmm. potentially for follow-on production. But there are some aspects to transparency of those transactions that we want to make sure that's captured. So we're not going to have a standard slate of terms and conditions for OT agreements like we have with the FAR and the DFAR, but we do want to have some reporting and understanding of where those dollars are going. Uh, and also, we're recognizing the consortium style with its most recent issuance. We know uh, many of the components across the department are using the consortium style of right. other transaction authorities, so yes, just providing yep. some guidance about how that's done in an optimal way. Yeah, and some of the uh, energetics, there's a big consortium around that for the Defense Department. There's a couple of these different consortia going, and they kind of are an abstraction layer in sourcing, right, for the DOD. So you got to know what's happening under that layer. Yeah, so that, that's one great example, and so we want to make sure that uh, people are aware of that, because there's a tendency to recreate some of these things. The department is, is a very large institution, and yeah. we want to make sure that through communities that practice, people understand where they can access existing mm -hmm. consortia. So what are some of the factors that could cause a financial or pricing effect from a need for compliance? Is it all labor? Is it all just activity by the contractor that involves people? 
Janet? So it's interesting because as part of our defense contract finance study that came out at the end of April, there is a segment that actually starts looking at things like accounting systems, cost accounting standards, and can you determine the cost of compliance? And it's a very challenging area in terms of actually defining there's X you know, amount of dollars. And, and what the data showed that we saw is that you're not gonna see a consistent answer, it always costs X amount. And you know, some companies are already subject to things like GAAP, and then we get into more specific areas depending on what kind of contract type that they're taking on. Say it's cost reimbursable. And one of the things that came out of the finance study that was really interesting to me is when you look at who is actually subject to things like cost accounting standards, which are, I would say, the most strict mm -hmm. when we start thinking about these things, it is actually a very, very small percentage of our defense industrial base. Janet Muskoff, the Director of Price, Cost, and Finance, and John Tanaglia, the Principal Director of Pricing and Contracting at the Defense Department, speaking at the National Contract Management Association's recent World Conference in Nashville. We've got a lot more coverage of NCMA. It'll be posted by this Friday at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, 
you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely them. It's not just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chance that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about 
integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.